So, well, my story is that I spent from early teenage years until I was roughly 40, uh, basically binging and starving in one way or another. And in my eyes, the only thing that was a problem was my binging. Anything that I did to control my weight was okay, okay? And uh, what I would do is uh, once I'd get started, I'd eat, well, it built up slowly. I mean, as a, early on as a teenager, I just took a plate of fruit into my bedroom and would eat that. But that was the beginning, the beginning of the end. Um, this was back before people were talking basically about my end of the eating disorder stuff. And I was, I've always been a standard weight. And as I tell people, that is a real good way to come up with denial. <laughs> um, and I, in fact, I used to think that if I tell somebody that I binge or something, which I normally would, never would, you know, it was a big secret. But if something came up about I'd eaten, I'm owning that I'd eaten too much, I think people probably think I ate two candy bars instead of one or something. And, you know, I wasn't letting anybody know I was eating probably 10,000 calories at a crack or whatever. And what would happen is I would eat all those calories in secret, very much a secret. I did not have binge buddies. But also a huge aspect of my history is that I isolate. And I certainly wasn't going to do the eating in front of somebody else. So anyway, I would eat these huge amount of calories, and then most of the time the way I did the weight control was that I would undereat or fast for a period after that. And what would happen is my weight would yo-yo, I don't know, 15 pounds, maybe 20, something like that. For When I was in the binging phase, I'd pick up some weight, and then when I'd get up to some sort of certain weight, then I wouldn't have the urge to binge as much, and then I would start losing my weight, and then the urge to binge would come back, and it was just a perpetual cycle. Probably... Well, for me, the hardest part was the really, well, besides, the, of course, the physical discomfiture was huge, but other than that was the guilt, the shame, and the remorse that I felt. I felt that I was an intelligent person. And, and remember, nobody's talking about this, this whole thing in, in my world. Everybody else, as far as I'm concerned, is eating normally, Okay. And and I just, at this point in my life, I do lose my place periodically. I hope you'll all be patient. But, yeah, I, I completely forgot where I was going with that. Anyway, I would go ahead and do that cycle. And, uh, oh, I know. And I so in thinking I ought to be able to handle a simple thing like food, you know. Everybody else handles it. Why can't I handle? And it's part of my whole thing of basically the tape that I have in there of I am bad, I am wrong, you know. And that that's a that's a killer. So anyway, I did try vomiting once. I didn't have the guts to do the finger down the throat. So I got Ipecac, 
Well, luckily, Ipecac was a disaster. And for years after that, if somebody even said the word Ipecac, I felt like I had to control myself to not vomit. I feel so lucky that I didn't also get into being addicted to vomiting. You know, how many things does one want to be addicted to? So anyway, and I took a little mineral oil a little early on and did a few things like that, but basically... Like I say, my whole thing was restricting in one form or another and binging back and back and forth. And I did. I've done some exercise, definitely, with the purpose to control my weight. But I've never been a wild exerciser. You know, I've never done hours of exercise. So, anywho, that went along for decades. And I remember when I was married and in college i well two things stories i like to tell one is that i was in dietetics and nutrition and home ec that department and i got into a dietetic internship and i was the only one in the class that asked and had a rotation in the experimental kitchen so basically symbolically for all practical purposes i was locked up in a room with free food all day for a period of time uh, the other thing that I would, one of the things I would do was I would make a contract with my husband or a contract, I guess, that if I was good all week on the weekend, I could make, this was back when I baked uh, outrageous desserts and stuff, and I could make stuff and I could eat whatever I wanted. Now, he never saw what I ate. I don't know that he ever really had any concept of what was going on. And I remember we would have end-of-quarter parties, which we would have, and I would just be the picture of virtue through the whole party and then was, let's look and see what happened after people left. Okay, so that sort of thing went on, and and I was never cured by the last page. Now, nine chances out of ten, I didn't do any of the things they suggested, but, you know, even so. And so finally, in desperation, and I don't know how I found out about it, but I ended up at an OA meeting, and it was in another town. There were probably two dozen people there, and they all weighed a lot more than I weighed. So I was clear that they had a problem, and I just had this little thing of binging. (laughs) So I left. Two years later, in desperation, I went to the meeting in the small town I lived in, and there was probably, you know, a handful of us there. And again, while those people are losers, they've got nothing going for them. I'm really hip, slick, and cool. I just do this binging thing. And as I want to share, in my entire life, I have never even been close to hip, slick, and cool. You know, totally not hip, slick, and cool. But anyway, uh, so I left that meeting, and two years later, I went, I got a new job, and they sent me to a training to learn about seniors and their relationship with alcohol and other drugs. And... What I found was that what they were talking about sounded just like my relationship with food. Luckily, the people that led that workshop were in big into 12 steps, and I think it was the following Monday night I was back at that silly little meeting in my hometown. Something they said in that meeting convinced me that there was a chance that OA could do it. And so 
anyway, I went for six months, and I was avid about it. Well, you know, one can be driven about anything. I did the inventory the whole bit, and at the end of that, I had two months of white-knuckle abstinence. And basically, it was white-knuckle because I was under-eating. You know, I wasn't binging, but I wasn't eating enough either. And I figured out at the end of those six months that really... The steps were wonderful. They were the answer. But I didn't need to spend my time at those silly meetings, so I left. And I lived in a town that had a lot of gray inversion in the winter. And I have depression is one of my bedfellows, historically. So life was not looking good. You know, I, I, I had lost my absence, of course, shortly after leaving the meetings. Uh, but... What was going on was my interior emotional landscape was falling apart, basically. And finally, something after about a year and a half of not attending, oh, except I did take somebody else to one meeting during that time. Isn't that a giggle? Anyway, something told me that I needed to get back to those silly meetings. And I came back to meetings with a vengeance. I'm a believer in meetings. You know, when I quit meetings, I lost my abstinence. And then when I, after a period of getting into the meetings, I got abstinence back. So anyway, for years, I went to five meetings a week. And during that early on period, I still lived in that small town. So I caught that one meeting. I went to open AA meetings. They were wonderful. I went to other towns to get OA meetings. I got meetings. And... You know, I'm grateful, and it's so wonderful now that we have all these other ways one can attend meetings. I'm still an in-person meeting-goer normally. I mean, I tend to isolate, and I need to be in the same room with other people. Uh, And luckily, I'm here in Portland. We have a lot of meetings, so I can get to a lot of in-person ones. So anyway... I spent a couple of years of going through a cycle where I would be abstinent. And remember, for me, this is the definition is, at this point, is not binging, okay? And I'd be free of binging for eight or nine months, and then maybe for a couple months I'd do an occasional binge. And then I'd repeat that cycle. I probably went through that maybe three times, whatever. And so there was huge progress, and I was still using the food. And I would periodically admit that to myself. And then I'd go to these meetings and people would talk about their big spiritual recovery. But, and I could, I took that football and ran with it. Well, I have all this spiritual recovery. I just am still binging sometimes, you know? And so one of the things that came to me Oh, and oh, one another story I like to tell is somewhere in this process, I went to an eating disorder treatment place where they would do a free assessment. They assessed, told me that I was bulimic. Now, I, my whole life, literally, I have a history of being a question asker. Do you know, I never asked why they labeled me bulimic. I think that is denial in the extreme. So anyway, which meant I just went out and kept living my life as I was. 
um, at after a couple, three of the sessions that I was referring to, where I, you know, be abstinent for several months and then do an occasional binge, I suddenly got some other willingness. Now I don't know how abstinence works. I have no idea. All I know is I can share what behaviors changed in me at the time, more or less concurrently with when the, this abstinence hit. One was I ended up getting a sponsor who was both bulimic and a psych nurse in an eating disorders clinic, and she was the one who called me on the way I was controlling my weight. And like, if I'd have a binge, she would, and I'd call and, you know, fess up. She didn't tell me, oh, dear, I bet Aunt Matilda beat you when you were two. No sympathy at all. What she says, oh, you didn't eat enough, huh? And one of the things she shared was that the doctor on the unit she worked on said that either the most important behavior or one of the most important behaviors, those of us that were, you know, the people in that unit could cultivate was to eat at the same times every day. Well, I took that to heart and came up with an hour morning, midday, and evening that with my weird work schedule, I could start eating somewhere during those hours. And I did it. You know, again, I have drive. Just where I, where do I use that drive? And I think that allowed my body to get some trust in me because before that, my body had no idea whether I was going to cram thousands of calories in it in a half an hour or was going to not feed it anything for a couple days. It was a crapshoot. And I think that my body knows today that it, in, in, a normally, in a reasonable amount of time, it's going to get a, basically a reasonable amount of food. Now, it's been years since I've done those specific hours. But anyway, at the time... You know, that was part of the transition process. Another thing is I started working with a man who was a big book person. He he had he was a member of another fellowship also. And I did tenth steps. I did the tenth uh, the um step work with him. And there were years when I called him every morning at seven fifteen or whatever. Five minutes. We we worked together for roughly 27 years before he died nearly two years ago at the age of 91 or 92. And I I will do an aside about, for me, having a long-term sponsor or or a long-term somebody. Five minutes. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, how time flies when you're having fun, they say. So anyway, let me, I need to fast forward. What is it like now? What it's like now is that, one, I haven't had to practice my eating disorder. I haven't had to binge my brains out for, I think it's 28 years. And the and, and something that to me is even bigger is that the last several years, and I don't have a marker for that, the big obsession to want to binge my brains out has been removed, okay? Now, 
I'm still insane about a whole lot of things. I still, I need those steps. I mean, those steps to me are lifesavers. And I want to back up a minute. Um, I, I want to be sure and say, during the first few years of this abstinence, periodically the big obsession would come up. And there are four things that if I did one of those things, the big obsession at that point would leave. Now, I don't know if it's because I did those things. I don't know why, but it would happen. So the four things were, one, was doing the tenth step. like, And I did it like in the big book. Oh, somewhere in that process, the big obsession would go away. Another one, which... I totally believe in and use a lot, is calling a newcomer, calling somebody and reaching out, not to share about me, but to focus on program and them, getting out of self. A third one was I could sit and meditate, and now it could be pray. I couldn't even say pray back early on. Um, for 15 or 20 minutes, and again, I'd be, you know, everything would be okay. And the fourth one, the quick and dirty, the easy one, is just asking the question or praying the prayer, how may I best serve thee? Now, those things, any of them worked, and they only worked when I did them. Knowing them wasn't enough. And a good example with the the how may I best serve thee thing is I always knew the answer in terms of, you know, am I going to sit and eat this? I don't know if you mentioned foods or not, but this thing that's a binge food or not. I knew that before I would ask the question. So depending on whether the disease was a little further ahead or I was further ahead, I might or might not ask the question because I would know the answer. But if I asked the question, immediately the big obsession was gone. So... Anyway, and the other thing I want to say, with the food, with the just being absent, I can do a certain amount of white knuckling, okay? But if the obsession isn't there, there's nothing for me to white knuckle against. I mean, it's, you know. So anyway, at this point, I still go to a lot of meetings. I'm still nuttier than a fruitcake in a whole lot of ways. I still need those steps. You know, I need. I have another sponsor now, and we have an entirely different kind of relationship, and it's wonderful. Uh, but there again, I'm not planning to change in the next five minutes <laughs> at this point. Um, so the, the biggest thing to me that helps with my sanity, really, well, it's focusing on how may I best serve thee. I mean, that's the bottom line. And I figured out that I can't know what the higher power is, and I'm never going to know. I can't know what absolute truth is. For sure. I'm not big enough to know that either. So what I have to rely on is attempting to do what I think to the best of my ability, and only what I think because I don't know, is the will of my higher power and turn over the results. And I'm really a work in progress on that, let me tell you. So, anyway, how much time do I have at this point? Hello? Oh, I'm here. I'm just checking. Uh, 33 seconds. Oh, well, okay. Well, I can barely breathe in and breathe out on that. So, anyway, I hope if anybody has questions, they'll ask. And, of course, 
I would appreciate phone calls. Thank you for letting me speak. And, yeah, I think I'll end now. Thank you. Uh, Would you like to leave contact information? Sure. My name is Merle Ann, and my number is 503-281-8947. That's Pacific Standard Time. And also, I'm one that at night I turn my ringer off, so actually I can be called at any time. And I do respond to calls. I actually answer my phone sometimes. Okay. Would anyone and I like... cannot text. I only have a landline. Oh. Okay. 